we're going to continue this morning in our gospel-saturated life series, and I, I think, if I remember right, this is the 32nd sermon in Romans. I joked at the very beginning saying this was going to be our 90-week series, but we might get there. Uh, we'll see. So, and as we continue, and as we look at our passage this morning, I want to put up this slide just to remind you kind of where we are. We've broken this into five main sections through the book of Romans, and we're kind of right in the middle now at the life in the gospel, getting towards the end of that section. Just wanted to remind you of that, and I also just would like to give you a little sneak peek of our, of our text this morning. It starts with a so then, and whenever I see a so then or a therefore, that means we must know what goes therefore or so then what. We got to look back to see what this so then is, and if you've been here a number of weeks, you've heard some amazing truths, but let me just take a little bit uh, of time to remind you of some of them. So this fantastic chapter, chapter 8, starts with this amazing truth that now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There's no charge that can be brought against God's people. Jesus Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. And you've heard the Apostle Paul contrast those who are living in the Spirit to those who are living in the flesh. It's a contrast between God's chosen people versus those who are unregenerate or not saved. It's his children and then everyone else. There's a contrast there. And those who live in the flesh, the text says, cannot please God. They're hostile even to God. But the great contrast is made when the Apostle Paul speaks that those who are in the Spirit, or rather, as we learned last week, those who the Spirit dwells in makes himself home in. Remember as Brent spoke last week about the Spirit dwelling in us. And as I heard that, it just kind of reminded me of this amazing truth in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, where it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that's a different word there for dwelt, but the idea is that Jesus became flesh and pitched a tent among his people. He dwelt with his people. There was a more intimate sense now because he was here. But the Spirit now just doesn't live with us. The indwelling now is living in us. With versus in, there's more of an intimacy there. And just as a little side note, when Jesus said, you know, it's better for me to go away so I can send the helper, he's essentially saying it's better if I leave your presence so that the Holy Spirit can come and live in you. This is the magnitude of the relational God that we have the relational God we serve. He wants to be in relationship with us and intimate with us to make his home in us. So church, that's an amazing truth. The spirit of God resides in each one of God's children. And this is the same spirit that Jesus relied on when he did his miracles. It's the same spirit that Jesus was raised from the dead by. So this is an amazing spirit. It's not a second-hand spirit. It's the same one. There's only one Holy Spirit. So when the Apostle Paul, what he has done in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8 is he has said there is a lot of work that God has accomplished in believers' lives. In fact, I'd go further than that. I'd say God has done everything we need to be done in order to be saved. He's done it all. And then we get to verse 12. So all that by introduction, verse 12 in Romans in chapter 8. If you could turn with your Bibles there. You should just be able to hold them up now, and it'll open to Romans, um, I hope. 
Uh, it'll be on the screen, but you know, don't trust the screen. Look at your Bible. And so I'll be reading from the ESV. And in verse 12, it starts this way. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word yet again this morning. I pray that it would that you would open it up to us, that we would understand, and that, Holy Spirit, that you would be the teacher this morning, uh, that you'd give our hearts and our ears and our minds what we need to hear and understand, and that you would just open up your truth as we dive into the fact that we are your children. We thank you for uh, your revealed word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what an amazing, truth-filled, joy-causing passage this really is. You know, I find myself, the more and more I teach and the more and more I preach, I, it's like every, every time I get up, I say, man, this is like the most important passage in the Word of God. And it's like, it always seems that way. It's because it's what I've been in all week. It's what I've been in. It's like, as, as I dig, and I'm sure I hope you experience this too, as you dig, it just becomes more alive and life-giving, and it's like, wow, this is just really important. And don't get me wrong, all of Scripture is equally important, but it just seems like, man, this is just right in your face. God's word becomes alive the more we dig. Every passage is amazing. But as Brent mentioned, Romans 8 is kind of the mountaintop of Romans. It's the mountaintop experience. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter. So for this morning, I want to narrow down, I want to narrow down the, the passage to three points or three words. And they are obligation, adoption, and expectation. Obligation, adoption, and expectation. So first, our obligation. The Apostle Paul says, so then, brothers, this intimate brothers term, so then, fellow believers, Christians, we are debtors, is what the ESV says. The, we, are, we, are, we are debtors. But the word debtor here literally means obligation. Some translations actually have it translated obligation. And if we were to define it, it says, one who is under a moral obligation to do something. So you're under a bond. This is something you're obligated to do. You should do it. And so church, our natural response to someone who has done everything for us should be to live a life that's in response to that, to be obligated to them. Maybe to help give an example here, it's, it's imagine, uh, or not imagine, hopefully you have a friend where every time you call upon them, and every time you need a hand doing something, or need a tool, or, or need just to sit and talk and, and figure things out, they're always there. It's like, boom, they're just waiting. And they, and they, and they come, and, and, and they're, they're giving you good, godly advice, and maybe you even think, I wonder if they find me as beneficial to them as I find them to me. <laughs> Can I actually give back all that they give me? I have people like that in my life. I feel like I could never help them because it's like well, they either are better at everything or, or know more than I know or have more than I have or do more than I do. And I, in a sense, I, I just can't, I can't fulfill the debt that I owe. But man, when they do call, I jump at the chance to try to help them because I've done so much. 
And so I'm sure you have people in your life that are like that. Now, now compare that person with Almighty God. There is absolutely no comparison. As good as that person is and as helpful as they are, there is no comparison when we compare them to the Lord. God has done so much more. He's done everything. He's done everything we needed to be done to accomplish our salvation. So God the Father plans the redemption for his people. God the Son accomplishes that redemption for his people by dying on the cross and then raising three days later. And then God the Spirit brings conviction applying that sacrifice to his people. Do you see? It's a Trinitarian God. It's all God. He has done everything. So now, our responsibility or obligation is to live in the power and in control of the Holy Spirit. To be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Remember Romans 6. You don't have to turn back far, probably a page or two if you want to. And just as we go through that real quick, we are to live in obligation not to the old self, is what our passage this morning says. Why? Because the flesh, that's been crucified with Christ. Verse 6 in chapter 6. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's verse 2. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are not to let sin reign in your body. 11 and 12. We are not to present our bodies as instruments for unrighteousness, but we are to present ourselves to God because He is the one that has brought us from death to life. Sin no longer has dominion over you. That's 13 and 14. Because we're no longer slaves to sin, we've been set free. Romans 6 is full of that. That's where all of that comes from. We've been there. So all that to say, all that to say, because of Christ's saving work on our behalf, sinful flesh no longer rules us. Therefore, we should not live by its sinful ways. We are obligated to be different. We're in debt. We are not the same as we were before the Spirit lived in us, and we're not the same as the world. There should be a marked difference in God's children. Then the apostle gives another contrast. says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you'll put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Those without the Holy Spirit will die in their sin. That's a straightforward statement. He's not saying that somehow one can fall back and lose this salvation that's been given. Remember how he starts the chapter. Now there's therefore no condemnation for those in Christ. Rather, he is saying that the one whose life is characterized or looks like the things of the flesh never had the spirit residing in them anyway, and they remain spiritually dead. To make an example of it, if someone shows no concern or re for repentance or worship or forgiveness or fellowship with other believers, just to name a couple of things, then I would have great concern for that one's soul because they remain spiritually dead. And not just spiritually dead, but a slave to sin. Completely unable. Completely unable to live any other way because God is not in them. Now that you have the Spirit in you, you need to put to death the deeds of the body. So understand, now that God has accomplished this amazing work of salvation, we now have the ability, and maybe I should say the responsibility, to kill sin. God's accomplished it. Now we have an ability that's new. Before Christ, we didn't have the ability to pursue a life of holiness that's pleasing to God. We couldn't do it. 
We didn't have the ability to put sin to death. This is what theologians often call mortification. If you like big words, this is putting the sinful nature to death. It's killing sin. It's mortifying sin. And you might say, well, I thought we were dead to sin. You just said that. Yes, it's true. The old self has been crucified, but we live in a fallen world in our unglorified, unperfected bodies. And I can foolishly look back at the corpse that's back there and think about those things, remember those things, and let it influence me. Now, that's foolish. I shouldn't do that, but we do. And so there's no way that Paul ever says you're going to be perfect and never sin again. Otherwise, there wouldn't be the commands there to put sin to death. There's a struggle. Maybe a way to put it would be like if you looked at several snapshots of one's life. If you looked at snapshots of my life over the 42 years, you'd find some pictures where maybe I was doing fairly well. And there's some pictures where, man, I really made some dumb choices and screwed up. Maybe your life is kind of like that too. Maybe I'm the only one that makes dumb choices. I don't know. I make a lot of them, and I've made a lot of them. And if we take the snapshot, and that's just what you judged it by, then maybe it looks pretty bleak. But if we look at the life as a whole, and the whole trend line, and the whole picture, and every single thing, then what do we see? Hopefully, what we see in the life of a believer, what you will see is a trending up. It will have peaks and valleys, but it will be a trending up. That's sanctification. That's God working in us. It, it, re, it should reveal a pursuit of God. It should reveal a killing of sin. It should reveal a life that is lived in response to what God has done in us and for us. The difference between a snapshot and a life of sin is great. A believer cannot live a life characterized by habitual, unrepentant sin. So as I say these things, I hope you feel a little tension here. There is some tension here. It's beautiful tension, but it's tension. The tension is that God has completely accomplished our salvation. He's done it. It's all from Him. I could add nothing to it. I can't make it any better. I can't take anything away from it. It's all God. But yet I have an obligation and a responsibility. It's not like God just puts you in some sort of trance and makes you a robot who can effortlessly just conform to whatever he wants and live a perfect life. If that were the case, there wouldn't be all these commands to put sin to death. He's commanded us to do this because there's a struggle. There's a life of struggle there to do that. To maybe give an example, it's sort of like if I asked you a question like, who wrote the book of Romans? Like half of you would probably say, well, the Holy Spirit. And the other half of you might say, well, the Apostle Paul. And then if there was three halves of you, they might say, no, the scribe that wrote it down. And so, no, you, so the thing is, is, is you have the Holy Spirit. That's right. Because the Holy Spirit inspired the whole word of God. He's behind it all. He superintended the whole thing. But yet when we know that Paul wrote Romans... We know he wrote it because of the grammar style and, and the words he used and the personality behind it. He's different than the other writers of Scripture, and we can tell that. So yes, God inspires the whole word, but he didn't do it by avoiding Paul's humanity and his personality and who he is. You can tell the heart of Paul through his writing, even though it's God who inspired the word. That's the same with us. That's the same with us. That's a tension. God has accomplished it, but yet we still have our humanity here. And the tension must remain because if it gets too loose, 
then we lose something and creep into error. Because some would conclude that, well, you've got to do these things. God gives you salvation, yeah, and he's completed it, but if you don't maintain it right, or if you do something wrong, and if you don't do it good enough, then he can take it away. Well, that's not right. We've talked about that already in Romans 5. God declares a believer righteous, and therefore we have peace with God. It's not a temporary peace. It's not a ceasefire. The war is over. God doesn't undeclare what he has declared. If we try to relieve the tension that way, then we let go of the side of the rope that holds on to God's sovereignty and his choice. On the other side of the rope, some will say, well, it doesn't really matter because what I do, because I'm just going to sit here and do nothing because God will accomplish whatever he wants to do no matter what I do because it's all God. That's just called laziness and disobedience. But it's also not right because the Apostle Paul here exhorts us. And he says, we must be disciplined. We must put an end to the sinful deeds that reside in the body. There's an active participation or obligation on my part to fight sin, to kill sin. You have a responsibility there. So church, though the Spirit we have, or through the Spirit, we have the, res- the, the ability and we have a responsibility. We have an obligation to the Spirit. And we might ask, well, how do we keep that obligation? How do we do that? The answer is really not all that surprising or, or difficult to understand, more difficult to practice, but it's through practicing the spiritual disciplines, and you know them. Prayer, we study the Word of God, we serve, we confess, we worship, we gather, we do and many other things that aren't on that list, those are all demonstrations of spiritual growth that provide the basis for further spiritual growth. To, to say it another way, those are all ways that we maintain our obligation and what makes me able to do it. Maybe to use an analogy, last week was a very sad week in the Rote Rock household. A really good and faithful friend of mine for the last 10 years decided it was time to give up. My espresso machine quit working. Some of you are like, that was too much for that. You had me emotionally. Some of you get it. (laughs) It quit working. It was the worst marriage problem I ever had. Um, Needed some counseling. So what do I, I did what every man would do. I YouTubed it. What's going on? Why is the water not flowing where the water's supposed to flow in, right? And thankfully, I found a video that showed me how to disassemble this whole thing into many pieces and many parts, more than I ever thought were there. Had it all apart on my table. Well, and I found that in the troubleshooting part that there's this, you know, water goes through there, and water has minerals, and, and it deposits things on little metal parts called boilers that heat up the water. And you got this stuff that builds up on there. Well, there's these little tiny holes that water has to flow through. And if it gets plugged, it stops. There's also something that you're supposed to do, like every other month in a home espresso machine, descale it. I've had it 10 years. I've done that three times. So I didn't do it quite enough. And it's gunked up. It was gunked up. Hope I didn't lose you, but sometimes I think we treat the Christian life that way. We get around to trying to do better or fix something when something fails, rather than just maintaining and paying attention to it. We start paying attention when something doesn't go right. And when it doesn't go right, 
That's oftentimes when we turn to God. But what if we prayed and studied and read and meditated on God's word on a regular basis? They were just habits. We were disciplined in them. I wonder if sometimes we would ward off the crisis that we face. Now certainly there will be times of suffering. We don't get a pass. But I wonder, I wonder, if I'd have done the maintenance and followed the manual in my espresso machine, I probably wouldn't have had the problem I did. And it's not really that I didn't know about it. It's just that I didn't do it regularly. I was lazy in following the commands of the manual. Church, we can ultimately be lazy in following commands of the manual, the Bible. It tells us how to maintain a heart fixed on God. And we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we do it. We practice the spiritual discipline. We're living a life in obedience by the power of the Spirit, which is our obligation. Now, not out of the sense that we could ever pay back what God has done for us. It's that we do it out of love and adoration and worship. We gladly accept this obligation, or at least should. Just so we don't forget all that God has done for us, the Apostle Paul then moves on to wonderfully describe the relationship between God and his chosen ones. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now clearly this moves us into the second point this morning of adoption. Now for the most part, we understand adoption today. You know, when someone adopts a child, they're taking them into their family and counting them as one of their own. Yet sometimes adoption in some people's minds could almost seem like it's, it's viewed as some sort of second-class person. Like, they weren't really born by blood, so they're not really part of the family. Some view it that way. And as the Apostle Paul was writing to the Roman Christians, he knows that they would have understood the significance of adoption based on cultural norms. Now, Roman adoption was taken very seriously. And I won't get into all the details, except that every Roman adoption ceremony, when, the, when it came to that point, had to be certified or witnessed by seven people. They had to have seven witnesses. It was really important that someone would remain that would know that this adoption actually took place. So if someone had died or moved away or whatever, they had seven, they had, well, someone did, they have six backups. So they, this was really important because if someone said, oh, it didn't happen, then they had these witnesses to say otherwise. Then there are four main results of Roman adoption. First, it was understood that the adopted son was now part of the new family and gained all the rights of the new family. And he lost all the rights of the past family. It's, that, it's really as if the past family never even existed because now he's a true legitimate son in the new family. And not only that, in Roman adoption, not only that, he became a full heir to his father's estate. Even if additional sons were born before or after, it didn't matter. He was an heir. And sometimes the adopted son was the primary heir. And then this is where it gets really thought-provoking. According to Roman law, the old life of the adopted son was completely wiped out, as if it never happened. If there were any debts, it's gone. If there were any crimes committed, it's gone. It's wiped out. It is stricken from the books. 
It never happened. It's like they hadn't been born until they were adopted. And since this is true in the eyes of the Roman law, so the adopted son was literally and absolutely the son of his new father in every sense with zero connection to the past. Now, who's Paul writing to? Christians in Rome. Some of them were Romans. Others certainly were Jewish. But they understood adoption in this way. You know, some were probably Jewish, but living in a Roman culture, they would have understood what he meant. Jewish tradition was not like this. Jewish tradition said the firstborn son was the most important. He would get two-thirds of everything, and while the younger son would get one-third. And on top of that, adoption really even wasn't practiced in Judaism. But this was not the case for Roman law. All sons adopted or not were given the same inheritance. So culturally, understanding Roman adoption is important. And there's even more about it, and it's more fascinating than I gave you. But even getting a glimpse of it, doesn't that make the apostles' words that much more powerful? Because what does it say? We're adopted as sons. All of us. Male, female, doesn't matter. Adopted as sons. All the rights. All the privileges. The apostles saying we've lost all dues to our past. All the claims that could be made against us are gone. The old life is obliterated. It's done away with. Every sin that has ever been committed is washed away like it never been done. The old life is completely blotted out because now you're an adopted son of God. Don't take that too far. We are not God. We are not a God. We never will be. We are now simply and magnificently in the family of God. Isn't that a wonderful truth if we let that sink in? Church, when you become a Christian, when you believe in Christ and you repent of your sin, you are now in the family of God. You might ask, well, what's the evidence of that, of someone being in the family? Well, the text is clear. It's kind of, it could be a circle, really. If you're led by the Spirit, then you're, you're a child of God because children of God are led by the Spirit. One might ask, well, how do I know what that looks like? Have you ever gained understanding of Scripture? Read it and been like, I don't know, it prayed for understanding, all of a sudden, I somehow get it. Have you ever been lost for words and not know what to say, and all of a sudden, wow, I was in a conversation and I said some pretty cool stuff and I have no idea where that came from. Have you ever seen victory over sin in your life? Have you ever experienced desire, your desire shifting? Have you ever experienced conviction? Do you grieve for the Lord's sake when you sin and feel that agony over it? Do you feel a godly sorrow? These are evidences, and not a complete list, but it's an e those are evidences of being led by the Spirit. Once again, the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explains the believer's position in Christ in a way that would have shocked the culture. Because adoption of daughters, that wasn't really all that great. But as sons, that's where it was, and he says we're adopted as sons. This shocks the culture and it transcends time to even now, 2,000 years later, we can look at it and go, that's an amazing truth as we understand the cultural norms then. So there are a few examples of adoption in Scripture. First one I thought of, and this, there may be another one before that, I just thought in the top of my head, Moses. And then there's Esther. 
Then I thought of the story of David and Mephibosheth, and if I say that name wrong, it's going to happen one of these times. Mephibosheth is a tough one to say, uh, and it illustrates the power of adoption. You'll find the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. The whole chapter is about it. I won't go there and read the whole thing. I'll just give you Scott's translation. So David became king. He's got everything. Um, when you become king in that time, like, you get it all. You got all the land, you got everything, you're the most powerful man around. And he goes back and he says, hey, is there any surviving people of Saul's line? Now Saul, if you remember, was the first king, after the people asked for one. And David and Saul's relationship, well, let's just say, was complicated. Um, it started okay, but then it got to the point where Saul just went, like, on a murderous rampage and wanted to kill him. It's not very good. But... So they didn't have the, the, the closest of relationship there, but Saul's son, Jonathan, was David's best friend. And so when David goes back, he says, are there any surviving members for Jonathan's sake? And after a little searching, it comes about that there is this one called Mephibosheth. And so David says, all right, I'd like to meet him. And so they meet. Mephibosheth is kind of scared. Rightly so. Grandpa wasn't too nice to him. Um, like, he's the king. He could kill him. No one would bat an eye at it. And David says, don't be afraid. He was looking to show kindness to him. Mephibosheth was also crippled in both feet, which is an important point I'll get to later. So he says, don't be afraid. In fact, Mephibosheth, David says, I'm going to give you all that was your grandfather's. It's all yours. And you know what? Not only that, you're going to eat at my table. And it goes even further than that. In verse 11 of chapter 9 in 2 Samuel, it says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He ate at the table like David's sons. And if that's not touching enough, like I said, the, the, the chapter ends with, now he was lame in both feet. So in that culture, in that time, Mephibosheth would have been an outcast, a misfit, a second-class citizen, a beggar. David certainly displays the grace of God who takes on our deformed state and brings us to his table, into his family. David took the initiative and went looking for any relatives of Jonathan, just as God took the initiative in choosing us, you and I, to save. And the parallel continues. David and Saul were bitter enemies. Saul was an evil enemy, and God adopts us even though we were once enemies. But now we are justified by faith, making peace with God. We're no longer an enemy. Some of our songs say friend. It's even better than that. We're in the family. And he is our father. And then notice what Paul says here. He doesn't just say God. He doesn't say God is a mean, controlling, abusive father who rules with an iron fist that we can't really have a relationship with because he's just too high for us. No, he says quite the opposite. He uses the word Abba. Abba. It's an Aramaic term, and it's one that would be informal as a little child would use with their daddy. That's Abba. It's an intimacy. There's an affection wrapped up in this term. It's a term of endearment. It's not just an authoritative sense. In the English, it's best translated as Papa or Daddy. So church, as a child of God... If your view of God is someone who is untouchable or someone who is far above or maybe authoritative and ruling with an iron fist and not caring and not loving, 
someone that's too holy and righteous for you to even go to for anything. If that's your view, church, you have a mistaken view of God. It's true that God is absolutely holy and righteous, unquestionable. Yes, it's true that God will execute his wrath, unquestionable. But if you are his adopted child and you're led by the Spirit, then you have all the rights and privileges because the things that once made you an enemy are now canceled in God's eyes. This is a complete transformation. As a child of God, you don't have to run from God. He's not far off and he's not untouchable. The beauty is he not only saved us, but he desires close, intimate relationship with you. Don't let your thinking of your earthly father get in the way of how you think about your heavenly father. Some of you had really good dads and have really good dads. And some of you... I just, I know in a room this size had really bad dads. Whether good or bad, God is better. (laughs) He's way better. He desires close, personal, intimate relationship with you. He's Papa. That's an amazing thing. And if that's not enough, it's already enough. But if that's not enough, it gets better. Because remember, in the Roman adoption ceremony, there were seven witnesses to make sure that this was that we knew this happened this took place so no one can claim that it never happened or that it wasn't legit but in God's law the only witness to our adoption is himself and this leads to our third point of expectation so look at the screen the spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs and heirs and fellow heirs with Christ you can truly say God is my witness to the fact that I am his child. You can truly say that God is your witness to the fact that you are his child. There has been a legal transaction that cannot be revoked. Expect that. Keep, keep that in your expectant mind. And do not skip, and we don't want to skip over it, but did you catch that we are heirs? And I wish we had more time to go into the significance of that, but we're fellow heirs with Christ. Christ shares his inheritance with us now that we are children of God. You can expect an inheritance unlike any other inheritance, unlike any earthly inheritance. The best way I could point this out is turning to Ephesians chapter 1, and it's going to be on the screen, and there's going to be a lot of words up there. But I wanted you to see this, and I've adapted this from chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which says, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, sorry, that red's not really highlighting, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of of his glorious grace in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will in him you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I wish I had six more weeks just on that, but did you catch some of those amazing truths in there? Predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus, and we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. There's a lot of finality speech there. All that to say, God does not adopt his children as an afterthought, but according to his predetermined plan of redemption. And you can be assured that God doesn't unseal his promises. He doesn't undo his guarantee. No, this lasts until we require what? Possession of it. You can expect that. Do you see a pattern? This adoption is final because it's been secured in him. In him, before the foundations of the world, you were chosen. In him, you have redemption. In him, you've attained an inheritance. In him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of that inheritance. And then in our text this morning, the passage that we are going over in Romans 8, he is the witness of our adoption as children of God, as sons of God. One day everything on earth will be destroyed and it will disappear. But the possession we wait for, the inheritance we wait for, is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it will not fade away, and it's reserved for us in heaven where we will be with God forever in our new glorified bodies. We are heirs, and there's an inheritance awaiting. And what a beautiful thing to end on. Unfortunately, it doesn't end there. It keeps going. All that truth now comes to here. We are not in heaven yet. We are not in our glorified bodies yet. We still live in this fallen world where people hate God and hate Christianity and hate the Bible. It's hostile at times. And this is where our first point of obligation and our third point of expectation sort of cross. God has indeed done wonderful things for us that we've spoken about, and it should drive us to want to live a faithful life to him, but we shouldn't expect that it will just always be a cakewalk, that it's always just going to be easy. There's this misunderstanding out there that if I just come to Jesus, he just wants to give me a prosperous life with health and wealth and everything. That's not what scripture promises. It'll get a lot of people to come through the doors, but that's not the truth of God's word. Jesus said, you'll have trouble in this world, but take heart, I've overcome it. He also said, to paraphrase, you know, the world didn't really like me, so therefore, they're not really going to like you either. The Apostle Paul promised Timothy, he said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Church, being a Christian doesn't mean we're absent of suffering. Now, we're not being burned at the stake or watching our family members die for the sake of Christ, but it's happened all throughout history, and it's happening in the around the world today. You might be mocked or ridiculed or passed over for promotion at work or made fun of for many number of things related to Jesus. The list could go on, I'm sure. You could probably fill those in from your own experiences. Suffering can be on a very wide spectrum. But no believer is exempt from it. 
Many of Jesus' promises are positive, but suffering isn't very positive. But church, it's still a promise. And since Jesus isn't here on this earth any longer, then his enemies and the devil can't take it out on him, so they go for God's children instead. That's you and I. In this life, we will have difficulty. We can expect that too. But suffering produces perseverance and character and hope. Remember that from chapter 5 of Romans. And it's in those times, church, in those times of suffering, do not forget all that you have in Christ. Do not forget all that is there. That Christ, you are an adopted son of God and, and you are an heir with Christ. And therefore, we have the honor of living a life worthy of the gospel, as the Apostle Paul says to the Philippian church. I just want to close with a few thoughts to hopefully bring this to some application point. It's clear that Paul says we're obligated. We're in debt to God. We can never repay that. We can never repay all that he's done. But our lives should reflect a, a want to give back to him, to live for him, and to share the news of the gospel to others. He's truly done everything that was needed for us in order to be saved. He's adopted us as children, as sons. And yes, he has done it all. But we are still commanded to believe. We are still commanded to kill sin and live godly lives. Now it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to do this, and it's all from God, but we must respond. And with the trouble that this world tends to throw at us sometimes, we can get caught in the temptations, and they are many. For a lot of men, we get wrapped up in our careers, or our hobbies even, things we do, and we get so wrapped up in them that it almost becomes our identity. If you talk to somebody, what do you do? Well, I'm this. Not, I'm a child of God. <laughs> I don't, I've never heard anybody say that, and I haven't either. Um, but like maybe that should be our response. What are you? You know, we answer with our job, and that becomes our identity. On a different note, men, and unfortunately women as well, the temptation to sin takes on many forms, but sometimes it's in the form of provocative images on a computer screen. We misplace our identity, we misplace who we are in God, and we fall into sin's trap. For a lot of women, they tend to believe the lies that you must look a certain way or go to a certain school, get that career, have a perfect marriage while you're raising seven kids, all while being the perfect wife and homemaker. And if you don't do that, then you failed. And social media certainly doesn't help. As you look at others' posts, they have the perfect day at the park followed by the craft project with the kids with a picture of that sourdough coming out of the oven. It's all the rage now, if you didn't know. We get caught in these traps. Not that there's anything wrong with sourdough. We get caught in these traps, though, of believing you must do all this stuff to be accepted. We believe lies. And men, we do it too. We end up comparing ourselves, and then oftentimes we focus on these things too much, so much that they become who we are. We are known what we feel obligated to, and sometimes we feel obligated to the wrong things. Church, what are you obligated to? What are you pursuing? What matters? Are you living a gospel-saturated life? We are children of God. 
you are an adopted son of God. That makes a difference. And if you're in Christ, you're in the family of God. You've been adopted and the glories of heaven await as we'll share in the inheritance of Christ. Don't forget all you have in Christ. Don't let the world distract. Don't find your fulfillment or look for your fulfillment in sin or keeping up with what's on social media. It's a trap. To close, I want to share a story with you that I read in one of my devotions this week says this, the late newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst invested a fortune in collecting great works of art. One day he read of an extremely valuable work that he determined to add to his collection, and his agent, his agent searched the galleries of the world but to no avail. Finally, after many months of effort and great expense, the agent found the prized artwork. It had been stored in one of Hearst's own warehouse all along. He already had it, but he was looking for something more. I think this story parallels Christians who are constantly, who are constantly searching for something more because we forget or we don't understand all that we have in Christ. We forget our position as an adopted son into God's family. Church, you truly have it all. You do not need to search any longer if you are in Christ. May we live like we truly believe that. You have Christ. And Christ is all you need. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray that we would live in light of this truth, that we are adopted into the family of God, that we are in your family. Lord, that you are an intimate God who desires not only to save us and has saved us, but desires relationship with us. God, for those that might struggle and think that you're untouchable, Lord, I pray that you would reveal your tender heart to them. Lord, I pray that we would all recognize and live in the truth that your gospel is what saves us, and that changes everything. Thank you for your word that revealed that to us once again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.